0: hello and welcome to scribe to screen a podcast about visual adaptations of books from across the ages Uh, sorry for being mia last week i was busy planning the bombing of multiple political symbols in the city of london Uh, anyway (laughs) uh, i'm charles and this may or may not be my daughter kim
1: This week, we'll be discussing a canonical text of my childhood in an authoritarian state, Alan Moore and David Lloyd's V for Vendetta, and its 2005 film adaptation, directed by Lily and Lana Wachowski. The blurb on the back of my copy of V for Vendetta reads, A frightening and powerful tale of the loss of freedom and identity in a chillingly believable totalitarian world, V for Vendetta stands as one of the highest achievements of the comics medium and a defining work for creators Alan Moore and David Lloyd. Set in an imagined future England that has given itself over to fascism, this groundbreaking story captures both the suffocating nature of life in an authoritarian police state and the redemptive power of the human spirit which rebels against it. Crafted with sterling uh, clarity and intelligence, Vendetta* uh, brings, an un- brings an unequal depth. Of- ah.
0: This is a bit. *Viva
1: Vendetta* brings an unequal depth of characterization and verisimilitude to its unflinching account of oppression and resistance. You know, I think that's more text than there is in the entirety of *Viva Vendetta*. Of
0: <laughs> yeah Stall on the wow, back that's a blurb of many words well the complete antithesis <laughs> to that here's the film synopsis on imdb in a future 2020 <laughs> british tyranny a shadowy freedom fighter known only by the alias of v plots to overthrow it with the help of a young woman
1: okay sure
0: yeah that's kind of
1: mean to evie but fine yeah. shall we jump right into our personal relationship with the book and the film Charles would you like to
0: yeah I see you actually haven't scripted anything I usually don't Uh,
1: because I can pontificate
0: that's because you're just going to ad lib it
1: oh yeah (laughs) I have things to say so (laughs) I said at the end of the last episode that V for Vendetta made up approximately a third of my entire personality between the ages of mm, 15 and 18 maybe and it shows (laughs) thanks Even now. (laughs) Thanks, Charles. Uh, No, okay, so 2012, when I was 15, was a really great year for media for me. I discovered My Chemical Romance, Doctor Who, and Viva Vendetta, which were the entirety of my personality and remain so. (laughs) I've developed a lot of other interests over the years that have sort of usurped those three, but I think if you know me at all, that explains basically everything there is to know about my personality. Everything yeah okay so i came to yes so i came to this uh film first (laughs) my debate coach when i was in secondary school said and i quote if you want to understand politics you need to watch (laughs) view for (laughs) vendetta thanks alvin okay (laughs) yeah i think of
0: worse ways to get into politics
1: no 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 he was definitely trying to radicalize us so i watched it (laughs) i loved it i was obsessed with that movie i was just i was crazy about it that year, we went to Japan on holiday and went to the big Kinokuniya and I was just like, oh, it's a big bookshop. I think I shall try and buy a copy of V for <laughs> And I finished the whole thing on the plane, and I was obsessed with that too. And that would be the end of the story, except that when I was doing my IB, I decided to write my extended essay on V for Medeta. And so I wrote 4,000 words on V as a messianic and demonic figure in the book. Which, not only will you hear a lot more about later in the episode, but also entirely (laughs) changed my life, because it was in working on this extended essay that I decided that the one thing I wanted to do for the rest of my life was stick post-it notes in a book while drinking a cup of tea in a completely deserted classroom. And that's what I did at the University of Oxford. You never
0: looked back.
1: Oh, no, I really didn't. (laughs) Seriously, I I went to Oxford because of this book. So, thanks, Alan Moore and David Lloyd.
0: Yeah, that's quite a lot of baggage.
1: That's a lot of baggage.
0: Anyway, I first approached V for Vendetta drunk. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm just joking. My first exposure to V for Vendetta was four years ago. Holy sh! I'm old. At a film viewing organized by Kim in her university room for Guy Fawkes Night. Kim really wanted us to enjoy this film. And I I don't really remember the general consensus in the room, but you know how it is when students get together and they're trying to watch something on a screen and attention is involved. There may have been some alcohol. You know how it is. I was pretty confused, drained, and I was actually trying to pay attention to the film right? because I was one of the artsy ones in the room. It was kind of my job. But oh my gosh, I, I could not for the life of me. Oh no. I also wasn't drinking that heavily that night either. I don't think there was drink involved, was there, Kim? Uh,
1: was that I mean, it was in my room, so probably not that
0: much. Probably not that much. It was it was
1: like a probably a bring your own booze. I mean, we drank at every social gathering we had, but, yeah. so there was some booze involved. Probably not that much though.
0: Yeah. Anyway, yes.
1: <laughs> so how was it?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hadn't read the comic book at all, because if you've listened to our Watchmen episode, mm. that was my first reading of a <gasps> Alan Moore, David Lloyd comic book That was Dave Gibbons, I loved it. Oh, it was Dave Gibbons F*** It's fine, it's all getting cut out
1: <laughs> it's your first, It was your first encounter with Alan Moore and a Dave
0: Alan Moore uh... and a Dave <laughs> Associated Dave, yes And yeah, as soon as I read Watchmen I was like, cool, we're gonna have to do Vendetta now, aren't Woo! we? Because I need more Woo! I need more, more <laughs> So, how was it?
1: Uh, how was jump it? ahead
0: to now, i finally read the comic, watched the film again, and I understand it. Yay! Hooray. Much like Evie, I have <laughs> been converted <laughs> and radicalised. I understand the ideology now. Yes. Yes. Uh, I may even have some thoughts on why the film bamboozled me in the way it did, and how the comic filled in those gaps. Mm. The central plot of V, however, has only grown on me with time. I still don't like it as much as Watchmen, I don't yeah. think, aesthetically and story-wise. But doing research for this episode, talking to Kim about it, my respect for V for Vendetta grows the more I think about it.
1: Oh, that's good. Like, I'm always that's noticing
0: cool. something new or remembering another thing and how it ties to another association I have with it. Yeah, no, it's it's very rich.
1: Yeah. I have mixed feelings about this movie. I recommend it both book and film to a lot of people, and I usually tell them to start with the film, which is not a thing that you normally Whoa. hear. Uh, and my reason for that is that I absolutely loved this film the first time I saw it and on its own merits, I still think it's fantastic. It was my favourite film for a long time. But the book absolutely destroys the movie because as we shall discuss, <laughs> it's not actually that good of an adaptation. No. Not really. It's a good
0: film. It's uh, a great movie. Yeah.
1: It's an okay adaptation, but like, it's an, it's a mediocre adaptation of a really phenomenal source text. So it, you know, it suffers a lot by the comparison, I think.
0: Mm. Yeah. So, shall we get straight into it?
1: Let's, yeah, let's go. Let's go. Okay. In the section that you've titled.
0: (laughs) Yeah, let's reload the Matrix. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) And talk about the style of V for Vendetta, the film. (laughs) Yeah. So, I will argue that it's a bit easier to convert the monochrome, because the comic was done in black and white in its first release, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it's kind of easier to convert that monochrome world into a film mm. than the striking, ridiculous, otherworldly colours of Watchmen. Mm-hmm. But I still want to commend the Wachowski sisters for retaining a lot of the campiness and vibrancy of the setting. Yeah. We've got blowing up the old Bailey to Tchaikovsky's Overture. We've got slow-mo fight scenes mm-hmm. followed by Shakespearean monologues. Uh, granted, I don't think it's much of a leap from the source material because I think the source material is a lot... Ah! No, it's just about as campy as Watchmen. Yeah, it's, it's but...
1: approximately the same.
0: <laughs> but yeah, it's it's appreciated that yeah. it's actually still here. Mm. Because some directors would have cut it out to make it Ooh. edgy or something.
1: I mean, I, I love how camp this film is. It's just a ridiculous movie. It's like the weirdest. <laughs> they have an entire section in the middle that is just a sketch comedy that they air in its entirety. It's fantastically
0: yeah, that really threw me off the first yeah. time. Not gonna lie.
1: No, I mean, it, 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 it's got weird tonal shifts. <laughs> but now I adore it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the film's extremely camp, and I think it. I mean, it tones down a lot of things from the book, but fewer things than you'd expect. And I really love how they kept mm. in V's theatrical turns and his like different disguises, and how they didn't try and redesign the costume. Which now that I'm thinking about it, they really could have, because the V for Vendetta outfit is ridiculous. Like V's, he's got this massive cloak <laughs> and the stupid hat. They kept the hat for the movie, which I'm like, really? It's such a dumb hat, but it looks amazing. Um, <laughs> and it, the point is that like, it looks especially weird, which I guess is the whole thing about mm. it, because they could have gone for a more conventional look, and I think it would have ruined the movie. I also really love V's introduction, which is just a total delight. And considering that the mm. scene where he blows up the old Bailey is completely added for the film, it's a lot more toned down in the book. They really managed to completely nail his characterization, at least in that one scene, and the overall tone of the film and the book. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Good introduction. (laughs) He makes a very strong first impression, does does.
1: Oh, and it gives me a thrill. You know, when when he says to Evie, um, Do you know what day it is? And she says, It's November the (laughs) 4th. And he goes, Not anymore. I'm like, Okay. (laughs) I'm here for this. Yeah. Tell
0: me more, V. (laughs)
1: Um I think we also both really loved the bit where he introduces himself in this just ridiculous speech using a million V words which <laughs> includes almost every single chapter title from the comic. In fact I think it's got all of them mm. except the I don't know like Valerie and
0: I didn't actually check but yeah of course they all begin with the because. Yes. Of course they do. Yeah. Uh...
1: I, yeah. The thing about that is that there are a lot of cynical things that in a lesser film you could say they're just trying to work in the source material in a tokenistic way, they name-checking it so that they don't have to really deal with it. But I think mm. the way that the whole situation is handled makes it feel more like it's fun and it's loving and it's not the people adapting it, you know, just going, will this do? It's it's actually something that they wanted to do because they enjoyed it. And yes. it, it indicates to me, more than anything, that the film is not ashamed of its source material, which is a thing that you yes. really run into with a lot of comic adaptations where they're like,
0: yeah. oh,
1: well, we're not a comic book. And this one they're like, yeah.
0: Because Lycra is freak. stupid. <laughs> 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 These costumes are so dumb. Yeah. Let's make them edgy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh...
0: <laughs> you can tell it's a labor of love because it takes something that I mean you can do chapter title cards in yeah. films, but it takes something inherently bookish and then makes it super theatrical, yeah, which totally makes sense for v's introduction and character, even if it does kind of ruin the realization that you get in the when you're reading the comic that everything begins with v.
1: I mean, and you I see
0: the number on the door and you're like, oh, okay, I see where this is going.
1: I mean, anything is worth giving up for the sake of the line, this vichyssoise of verbiage veers most verbose.
0: <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, and of course the alliteration is actually a speech that makes sense as well. Yeah. It's not just name-dropping yeah, chapters yeah, yeah. for the sake of it.
1: It's shockingly clever. I'm really, I don't know how they managed to work in the phrase vox populi without it sounding ridiculous. <laughs> vox populi! <laughs>
0: <laughs> mesmerizing.
1: Fantastic. Did you want to talk about the fight scene?
0: Uh, well, I mean, it's definitely the Matrix. It but is. I think it kind of works for V though, doesn't it? Because he kind of just dazzles his foes completely and seems mm. to move like a shadow. He's just inhuman in how fast he is. You can get this impression from, from reading the comic book as well. Uh, yeah, and of course it recalls the Matrix.
1: Yeah, yeah. We're talking specifically about the fight scene at the end of the film, by the way, which, uh, spoilers involves V taking about a hundred bullets and then absolutely destroying about, was it ten men? With uh, yeah, <laughs> and I quote your that. knives <laughs> and your fancy karate gimmicks. Um, he, you know, <laughs> we go into bullet time, he just sort of whizzes through throwing knives and you get to see the knives spinning and then like as they cut people's arteries, it's really fantastic. Mm. <laughs> I agree that that's a really good way of showing off V's fight prowess I think it's a bit weird in the context of this book because David Lloyd I think quite consciously makes a lot of efforts to not show V moving and there are yeah. a lot of sort of still images of his face or still images of people reacting to being impaled by various things
0: and there's yes. like a running
1: thread in the book where like people keep saying, oh it doesn't look like this person's been stabbed, it looks like someone shoved their fingers into them really hard but we never actually find out what it was so yeah we don't really know what V does to his opponent kind of
0: adds to his mystique the idea of him being an idea yeah (laughs) and kind of immaterial (laughs) yeah
1: but i mean you can't really do that in a film so you know considering the limitations of the medium that is a pretty decent way of showing it i think
0: yes and boy talk about going out with a bang I love how the one quote I remembered from that confused film viewing three years ago was, my turn. (laughs) Yeah. just taking the million bullets and then going, okay, that was cute. Now time for some karate tricks. Yeah. It's just, moi, bellissimo. (laughs) Fantastic.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I have nothing more to say other than I...
0: How can um, you follow up from that?
1: <laughs> no, I mean, okay, except to say that, like, I think we're getting all the things we liked about this movie out of the way pretty early, <laughs> um, <laughs> by way of demonstrating that this film is great on its own. And I think mm. I go a step further and say that while it may not be a great adaptation of *V for Vendetta* specifically for the reasons that we're going to get into in just a minute, it's not only a great movie of its own on its own merits, but it's also a great comic book adaptation. Were it any comic books yeah. that's not this. Like, I'd love to see the Wachowskis do a Batman thing just because
0: Oh yes.
1: In the style of Viva Vendetta, because I think it'd be pretty amazing. Yes. Yeah. The best Batman movie.
0: Are we getting that? Mm.
1: No. <laughs>
0: Unlikely. No. <laughs> but
1: yeah, Viva Vendetta, the best Batman movie. <laughs> Hot take. Moving into things that we were less fond of, and I think it, into a great engagement with the original text.
0: Hmm. I mean, you especially, Kim. I'm you know, sorry. The queen of character. Oh lord. Strikes again. Yeah, let's talk about character.
1: So I think in this section we wanted to talk about specifically Evie and V. I mean, obviously Evie. this film does a lot of things to the other characters, but first of all, we don't have all day, and second of all, <laughs> I think we'd both agree that those two characters are the axis on which both book and film turn. I yes. think the book. I was gonna. I said to Charles. I think that the book is very much more Evie as a protagonist, and V as the deuteragonist, yes. and that's flipped for the film. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of Evie, they give Evie a lot more agency in the movie, in a traditional and, in my opinion, superficial sense.
0: Yeah. Like yeah. the stakes are kind of heavily weighted against her from the very beginning. Like yeah, the yeah. police are searching for Evie and some guy dressed as Guy Fawkes. <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to just this terrorist, yeah, they're working very quickly on digging up any information they have about her. And that's because she also works at the studio, right? Yeah, she does. At the big broadcasting tower.
1: Evie's quite a lot older in this movie. I think think Natalie Portman was in her early 20s when she filmed this, and Evie Mm. in the book is 16, so it's quite a big difference. And they translate this also into her being a working professional, so she's a studio assistant at the broadcasting tower. Yes, which you know gives her gives her these great scenes of sort of dressing up as a professional woman and like doing a job that's not packing matches into matchboxes and yeah being quite <laughs> instrumental in um, V's attack on the tower, which I think are all things that people do when they want to make their female protagonist more active, and you know I applaud that to an extent. Mm. Yeah,
0: does it work for Evie though? I don't.
1: I, you know it in doesn't. The
0: context of the whole film. <laughs>
1: Okay so <laughs> go
0: on Kim you know you want to
1: <laughs> Oh jeez I'm sorry there's a lot of text here Okay so my my thesis about this is basically that they make Evie into what I've described as in in caps a spirited woman
0: <laughs> it is in caps. In she's a bar.
1: she's a spunky, strong female character who is able to take <laughs> care of herself. She threatens a finger man with mace. She actually does mace <laughs> a finger man in the face in the studio. That's it's actually quite a great moment where the guy's about to grab V and she just sort of taps him on the shoulder taps and, him and the sprays shoulder. him in the face. It's great. Good job, Evie. <laughs> she gets herself involved with V through her actions. I mean, despite the fact that he kidnaps her it's because she's in danger from the authorities, because she's chosen to cast her lot with V,
0: as opposed yes. to her just
1: being abandoned and uncared for and like having nowhere else to go, and nobody yeah. knows she's missing. I am also fascinated by the treatment of Evie's sexuality and the threat of sexual violence against her, because I think it's quite a big thread in Book Evie's character that she's constantly being put into these desperate, Obligatory, twisted sexual situations, even the ones that she does consent to. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Which she I mean, kind of has to.
1: Yeah, she does. Like, we do. You know, we to not be thrown out her... on the streets
0: with the finger man.
1: Yeah. We first meet her as an underage sex worker. She's attempting to, you know, try prostitution for the first time when we first see her. It's her first day. And she later enters a consensual and quite loving relationship with Gordon Trick, but it's complicated by the fact that he's, I don't know, what, 30 years older than her? And yeah. also, she he, she like literally picked her out of a bin, and she's sort of been like living in his house and eating his food, and he propositions her by being like, Evie, I need you to move out of that bedroom I gave you, because I need it for stuff. Why don't you sleep uh, in my room?
0: Yeah, yeah that, that does happen. Oh. Yeah. Oh, Which like,
1: she's, I guess, thankfully quite pleased about, because she's actually really happy about this. She likes him a lot. And, yeah. it, you know, to all appearances, she seems to love him and be happy in their relationship. But that doesn't take away from the fact that this is quite coercive.
0: Yeah. And, and of course does it's also... not end well.
1: Yeah, no, it doesn't. And she, like, propositions V as well, out of what seems to be obligation, I think, to sort of drive home the fact that her entire life has been defined by sexual menace, and that being, like, the avatar of greater menace from the totalitarian state that has forced her into poverty and killed her whole family. You know? Yeah. <laughs> And in the film, Evie is, both her relationship with Gordon and her sex work is translated into her potentially sleeping with him to get ahead, which is still Mm. coercive, but sort of less so, especially since she's a lot older. And also, we find out that Dietrich is gay, so he was never a quote-unquote sexual threat to her in the first place. Sexual
0: threat, yeah. Yeah.
1: And so she's been in exactly zero coercive sexual situations unless you count, you know, the Fingerman threatening to rape her that one time. Mm. All this to say, I mean, I'm not saying there should have been more sexual violence and exploitation in this film. I think Alan Moore has been criticized in the past for being a bit obsessed with rape and coercive situations to an extent that's a bit skeevy. Although, like, I'm not accusing Alan Moore of being a sexual predator. I just think that it's it gets uncomfortable to an ex- to a certain point. Yeah, but what this does, in my opinion, is make Evie look a lot less vulnerable to exploitation in general, and a lot more autonomous and inviolable, and it diminishes the development a lot more because the book Evie starts at a lower place and ends up in a higher place than the film Evie, mm. Evie does. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and even when the situation isn't sexual at all, even when it's completely abstract, philosophical, ideological, uh, she's arguing with V. The- much earlier on in the film than she is in the comic, where she's just kind of dazed by the entire situation and needs to Mm. take it all in. Mm -hmm. I think, as a general rule, in the comic, Evie's arc is more about understanding V's ideology, because Alan Moore's going pretty hard on that anarchist train at this time. Yeah, ultimately coming to understand why he needs to die and how that fits into his ideology. Yeah, yeah. In the film, the arc is more understanding than the necessity of violence? Question mark? Yeah. Yeah. But also not. Yeah. Because presumably, V doesn't want her to be a violent figure after the film's events.
1: Oh, yeah. I think what we're kind of edging around is the fact that Evie doesn't really have that much of of an arc in the movie no which is a bit unfortunate they keep in what i think is probably the most powerful thing in the book in general and also in terms of evie's arc which is the bit where she's tortured by v who's pretending to be the state so that she you know Gosh. loses her fear of death and like becomes a sort of person who can who holds on to her integrity regardless of what she's threatened with yeah and i think that's a great arc but because she starts at a place of so much autonomy and she starts off the film fighting back against the system at least in small ways, and then she finishes the film being like a regular person who doesn't fear death anymore. That's a lot less dramatic than what happens with Evie in the book where she starts off as a repeatedly exploited young girl who has no family and is searching for parental figures because she needs someone to take care of her. To like, she becomes V at the end, you know? (laughs) I do love the extent to which the book is a building's romance for Evie, where she starts as a helpless child and basically ascends to godhood. Uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yep, yeah, to put it lightly. Pretty much.
1: <laughs> Whereas, and I have here, um, uncharitably, film Evie goes from being a spirited woman to a revolutionary's widow. But we'll discuss that further later.
0: Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on. Moving on. We should probably talk about V, huh? yeah. So I've got a great kind of extended quote from Alan Moore in 2006 Ooh, around the release of the film. Bear with me, all guys. Right. This is this is some good stuff right here. As for the central character of the anarchist, V himself, he is, for the first two or three episodes, cheerfully going around murdering people. And the audience is loving it. They're really keyed into this traditional drama of a romantic anarchist who is going around murdering all the Nazi bad guys. At which point I decided that that wasn't what I wanted to say. I actually don't think it's right mm. to kill people. It's a very hot take, Alan Moore. <laughs> okay, Alan. So, so I made it very, very morally ambiguous. And the central question is, is this guy right or is he mad? What do you, the reader, think about this? Which struck me as a properly anarchist solution. Oh, Alan Moore. Cool.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm just going to, you know, preface this by saying I adore Alan Moore and everything he stands for. And also, I love that quote,
0: it's great. It's a very good quote.
1: It's fantastic. I I love that quote, actually, I think, because Moore isn't saying what you might think at first listen it sounds like he's saying. I mean, like, you know, based on genre tropes and the things that we're used to, when we hear morally ambiguous, we tend to think of, like, (laughs) troubled anti-hero. But the thing about this is that V in the comic is not troubled at all. I mean, he's an anti-hero, sure, but he's not in the least bit troubled. He's very certain in his actions and he has a very set idea of who he is and what he does, and which parts of them are moral and which parts are immoral and how he feels about that. It's Mm. us who are troubled by him. He is troubling to us rather than to himself, and I think that's very very original and also I think quite needed in the genre still to this day still
0: to this day yeah if you're gonna hear like a director interview for a hollywood film and him morally ambiguous you're in the groan zone you're like oh here we go again
1: (laughs) sad boy sad boy hours
0: anti-hero sad boy hours (laughs) but yeah i guess the whole point of the comic is like evie the readers are being taken for a ride by this enigmatic psychopath (laughs) for a good chunk of it before we reflect on ourselves and go wait Maybe I'm the bad guy. <laughs> Maybe I'm <laughs> <No>. the monster. <laughs> and start to wonder, what the hell is this guy actually getting at? Like Yeah. What is the I mean, vendetta V? What is oh. it? <laughs> what do you uh, fight for?
1: Yeah, no, I agree. And I think I don't think we ever shade into V being a bad person necessarily. I think no. that he remains very morally grey. Which is actually the topic of my extended essay, which I have recreated here in its entirety.
0: Oh boy. <laughs> no. I'm gonna go put the kettle on. <laughs> Do you want anything? Oh my
1: god, no. Uh...
0: <laughs>
1: no, but okay. Basically, my thesis in the extended essay, which I'm just I'm just bringing up to show where I'm coming from. I've I've had seven years to develop my feelings about this. Actually, <laughs>
0: uh... they've aged like fine wine.
1: <laughs> yeah. No. Okay. <laughs> But the idea behind V being a messianic and demonic figure, which relied on a lot of religious imagery, which I could get into, although it's not really relevant for the film, (laughs) so I'm not going to. But what all of that religious imagery basically resolves into as a character thing for him is that he is a force of nature in his certainty and his power, and he's sure of himself in a way that human beings don't tend to be. Because people, people make mistakes, they do things that go wrong, and they question themselves constantly which is the defining aspect of human life. Uh, v doesn't do any of these things.
0: Oh, and they often have more linking themselves to the world, so they yeah. can't go on massive killing sprees yeah. and blow up buildings without some yeah, kind absolutely. of repercussion to their family or people they're connected to. Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, and V has none of these things. He has no connections to the world. When he adopts Evie, she becomes part of his world rather than him being tethered to something outside of him. And, you know, as he says... V isn't flesh, he is an idea. And I think this is a lot truer in the comic than in the film, for this very reason, because of V's godlike power, where he controls fate, he apparently knows things that he has no way of knowing, like how Gordon died. And it's never explained how he knows that, by the way. He just does. Yeah, Finch getting into his mind is a quasi-spiritual rebirth that's drawn in the images of, like, literal being born again as he climbs out of a cave chanting la voie la Verte, la vie which uh for all you non-french speakers <laughs> out there translates to the way the truth and the life and i know this because when i googled it for my extended essay i like sat in my seat going oh my god oh my god oh my god for five whole minutes
0: <laughs> and for all of you french speakers out there i'm sorry for that pronunciation
1: oh f**k you <laughs> 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 Also, like V's total certainty <laughs> that Rosemary Almond's going to kill the leader, which she does, but they never mm. interact, so how he has any way of knowing or making that happen, I have no idea. He, like He just is God, basically, in this. And at the same time, he has no questions about his morality, and it's not to say that he thinks that he's right, because there are many instances of him saying that the things he's doing are morally wrong. But he has, like, reasons for them, and he has settled himself in his reasons, and in the fact that what he does is wrong, and he's just fine with it. He's so fine with it.
0: Yeah. You want to make an omelette? Gotta break a couple of Nazis.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's
0: in the recipe book right here.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, the point I'm making yeah. <laughs> is that <laughs> Film V is not like this. Film V actually is a troubled anti-hero, and I think that's really sad. I I just- Sad boy. I, I can't deal- He has this line right at the end when he's about to die, and he's like, For ten years I cared for nothing more than this moment. And then I met you. Oh, Evie, how could I throw my life away? On, on something as cheap as a revolution?
0: As something as cheap as being immortalized as an idea. Oh my god! Uh,
1: and also, Blame. you know, and he ha- he has many moments of doubt, including. There's a moment where after Evie storms out on him, quite understandably, after he tortured her, he flings his mask dramatically in a mirror, mm-hmm. which shatters, and starts to cry. And I have in my notebook, and I quote, "The Phantom of the Opera." <laughs> <laughs>
0: I had lost my shit when Kit sang this in the middle of the film.
1: <laughs> Inside my mind. my
0: mind. Yeah.
1: I just think it's character assassinating to portray V as someone who is troubled by his own monstrosity because mm. of the lengths that the film goes to convince us that V's humanity has been lost because it was forcibly ripped from him. And that, like... Evie who is his true lover and the person who the only person who really knows him mourns the man while everyone else mourns the idea and that that's a truer way of having encountered this guy and like yeah. you know that his experiences at Lark Hill have stripped him of his memories and his humanity and that it's just mm. a tragedy that he has become the way that he is whereas like in the original comic V very well remembers his life before Lark Hill we know this because he tells Evie he's not her father with a level of certainty that is uh that amnesiac people don't have, and and also, like, consciously decides to not engage with the world because he doesn't want to be a part of it anymore. And it's very obvious that he prefers his way of being to the way he was before, and that that was a decision that he made for himself and wants Evie to make for herself rather than having it forced upon him, which I think is a lot more interesting and a lot less insulting and patronizing to a very cool, (laughs) if possibly evil, person. Yes
0: yeah yeah gosh, oh, it's amazing how so many small references can just completely uh not obliterate but like completely change our outlook on a character.
1: Yeah, they pile up don't they?
0: Yeah, they do pile up. and as you said, yeah, a lot of effort was made throughout the film to make sure they piled up in a way that made sense.
1: Mm-hmm. It just
0: wasn't as interesting a sense. No as the comic. yeah, okay, well, thank you for your thesis, Kim. <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked about V. We talked about Eevee. What do you get when you smush them together?
1: You get an Oedipus complex.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You do? In the film's case. (laughs) Uh... Why did they kiss? Oh! (laughs) Why did they kiss?
1: Uh, For the Uh... record, Charles has this in size 19 font.
0: 19. I thought I'd gone higher. I thought I went to 24. Oh, did you? Damn it, I'll have to change that. Maybe I'll put it in bold or windings. (laughs) Windings. Ah! The thing is, I kind of wanted to make this joke because it was funny, haha. But also, now that I've read the comic and watched the film for a second time, I actually felt Kim's pain at the decision that was made here. The first time I watched the film, I had no idea what Kim was going on about. I was like, look at this sappy english student bearing in mind i was also an english student (laughs) getting choked up about art getting annoyed with uh, change yeah disgusting (laughs) but no now i completely understand this is revolting (laughs) why did they do it Kim? why did they do
1: because hollywood hates women and in particular me (laughs) this was a personal attack
0: yeah it's true they really need to give you a break
1: yeah, Probably I hesitate to blame the Wachowskis for this because, with my knowledge of both their politics and their filmography, I don't. I mean, it's possible that they were behind this piece of dumpster fire. But... Yeah. <laughs> but um, I'm aware it's that the hard film... to
0: believe it... that and yeah they wanted it.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I'm aware <laughs> that the film encountered a lot of studio interference. And when you think about the instances in which the V and E V relationship plays out and how easily that was dubbed over in post. You can kind Mm. of imagine that that might have been added after, I don't know, a focus group discussion or something. It drives me crazy.
0: (laughs) Do love a focus group in the middle of production. Maybe towards (laughs) the end.
1: I do enjoy how they turn V from a slightly amoral and maybe questionable teacher into a straight-up domestic abuser.
0: Oh yeah, I think that (laughs) does wonders for his character.
1: Yeah. Okay, we can start from the premise that V does a lot of things to Evie that are questionable at best and possible to describe as abuse at worst. And this happens in both the book and film. I don't think they really add anything um, that egregious in the movie in terms of his actual actions. So, you know, in the book, V abandons Evie in the street and hides things from her. In the film, he kidnaps and imprisons her. And in both, he poses as an entire totalitarian government for a period of <laughs> weeks and systematically tortures her while keeping her in a cell. <laughs> I
0: mean, when so, you, you know, put it that way, it sounds kind of bad. Mean, yeah. Oh my gosh.
1: And I don't think any of these things are excused in the book, but at least in the comic, V and Evie have a sort of mentor and student relationship, and they're very... They're very tender with each other and, like, Evie clearly trusts him and V repeatedly says that he loves her and he definitely means it. Yeah. But, like, fundamentally he's her teacher and she is his protege or his apprentice. And it really sort of papers over a lot of the bad things that he does to her because a mentor's job is fundamentally to teach. If you think back to your childhood, Charles, and all the good teachers you've ever had and the way that they treated Uh, you...
0: (laughs) Yeah, and the way that they didn't claim to be my secret biological father... (laughs) And that I was their protege, yeah. Oh no. That definitely didn't happen. Oh no,
1: you had a V and EV relationship with your old English teacher.
0: I did, and I had to ask if he was my father on multiple occasions. Good lord.
1: Uh <sighs> yeah. But I mean basically, you know, we we all love a good teacher who is kind to us, and I think that's probably the best sort of teacher, but I think we'd accept, if not if not from our lives, then at least from watching Kung Fu movies. That it is possible to accept a certain degree of crap from your teachers without it completely ruining your relationship. I mean, yeah, tough love. Just think Kung Fu Panda for a second and think about how abusive that relationship would look if they were lovers.
0: That's not where I thought that reference was going. (laughs) I saw Kung Fu movies and I was expecting, like, the karate kids or. Nope. I mean, jokes on you, I haven't watched any of them. (laughs) Not even Kung Fu Panda.
1: I have watched Kung Fu Panda that's Chew how i know next week on
0: scribe to screen yes but... <laughs> we do kung fu panda <laughs> kung fu panda <laughs>
1: i mean my point being that you know as evie's mentor V can torture her and like she has every right to be mad at him but the fact that she eventually forgives him and it's just like fine with it is not that weird to us i think not but a romantic context. relationship is not that you know, you don't want your romantic partner to torture you in order to educate you. I don't particularly want to be educated by my romantic partner at all, frankly. I mean, ew. Uh... You know, you want, you want a partner, you want an equal, you want someone who respects your autonomy and consults you in designing their behaviour and like doesn't do things that violate your agency, like locking you in his subterranean dungeon, or pretending to be a totalitarian government and systematically torturing you for a period of weeks. You know, like an abuser.
0: Yeah, that's pretty non-ideal. I'll agree with you there.
1: Yeah. I think, personally, the thing that really gets to me is this scene where Evie confronts V after she finishes with the torture thing and realises that it was him. And her side of this is pretty much the same in the book and the film. She's just so angry with him. She screams at him. She has an asthma-slash-panic attack and has to go up to the roof. But V's responses differ a lot Whereas in the book, he Hmm. doesn't really- he's not apologetic at all. Like, he is very- he explains his reasoning, and he offers Evie an explanation that he feels that she's due, but he doesn't apologize for his behavior because he knows that he was in the right, and he, like, centers her experience and the things that he wanted to teach her in his description of- But in the film, he goes straight to, But no will you ever understand how hard it was for me. I hated myself every day, just as you hated me. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Mm.
0: No. Mm. First of all, I didn't know I was hating you. Yeah. And that's kind of why I'm a bit shaken up. Second of all, this is literally just V doing the Jack Torrent, <laughs> did you ever think for one second about my <laughs> responsibilities <laughs> thing? Which is not a comparison I wanted to be making, <laughs> film. <laughs> Comic people didn't guilt trip somebody about his own feelings. Yeah. He's not supposed to have them. (laughs) (laughs) No, Charles,
1: that's not what the takeaway is.
0: Lol, JK.
1: You know, it's... (laughs) I mean, I think I can only imagine that they added that line because they wanted it to not look like he was a total sociopath. Because him attempting to play the romantic hero while also not being apologetic about torturing his romantic interest is very much a sociopath move. But on the other hand, like,
0: yeah. is this
1: not just, look what you made me do? Yeah. Yeah.
0: But that's kind of what it is. I told you, if you didn't revise my anarchy books, <laughs> if you didn't do your homework, I was going to lock you away in a cell.
1: <laughs> I mean, I think this is Except made... Except
0: without any yeah. indication that there were ever any anarchy books. No. Or homework.
1: I mean, I think we can only conclude that what V is actually doing is punishing Evie from running away from him. Because... Mm. Initially he says oh, to her oh gosh i yeah. don't like that <laughs> initially he says to her you can't leave because you would be able to identify me to the authorities and they'd torture you to find out where i am and then she contrives to escape mm. from him and runs away and then he at the first possible opportunity arrests her and tortures her so that she would no longer be the sole person to break down and give his location to the authorities which does strike me as a sort of vindictive vengeance, haha. Vendetta against a person who, you know, who went against went against his instructions and, to his mind, compromised his location by fleeing his Jeez. imprisonment.
0: What a selfish dick! <laughs> yeah, I mean,
1: okay, yeah. <laughs> you know, I hate that. I hate that on every possible level. Yanks. And I hate, I hate it. it even more because Evie loves him and kisses him and makes a whole thing about how sad it is that she's basically been widowed by his love of revolution. Um, And the film idealizes their relationship as, I don't know, the one bright spot in his horrible, horrible life.
0: Yeah, his, yeah. his life. Yeah, which we need to make sure it was yeah. worth something, yes. Yeah. I mean,
1: I, I can't, you know, the... I don't want my anti-fascist movie to be romanticizing domestic abuse, and yet here we are. So, you know, thanks I hate it.
0: <laughs> thanks I hate it.
1: Thanks we hate it. Also, before we go on to the next thing, I just need to give my least favorite quote from the whole movie, possibly. Although that's mm-hmm. basically every quote between V and Evie about their relationships is my least favorite quote in the movie. The movie's full of great lines, but no. <laughs> <laughs> no. And this quote is, I feel bad for Mercedes. Why? Because he cared more about revenge than he did about her. Oh. Yeah, I mean. Okay. Go on.
0: Okay, no, I know this is supposed to be a quick segue, but viva Vendetta experts. Were there any allusions to the Count of Monte Cristo in the. You know, uh, I really don't
1: think there were. There might have been, but if there were, they were in passing and, like, not enough that I'd remember.
0: Right, because I don't have any recollection of Mm. them. And I haven't read. Count of Monte Cristo but I don't need to to have known that every reference I've come across to it has been in reference to chivalry or like some heterosexual romance of like oh yeah I'm the hero I've got a sword and I'm gonna <laughs> fence people oh yeah with my phallic symbol it's like very a uh, macho
1: it is quite yeah
0: kind of uh chivalry and Mercedes is I mean, Stephen Dedalus like idolizes her in portrait <laughs> Wait, of the as a young man. Yeah, and when Stephen Dedalus <laughs> idolizes you, uh, something is wrong with your reputation. In but did
1: I'm Edmund sorry. Dantes leave her his second best bed as the question? <laughs> <laughs> he,
0: he might have done. That would be the honorable thing <laughs> to do.
1: Um, I think this segues very nicely oh, onto gosh. our next segment, which is described as Charles.
0: <laughs> keep your politics out of my comics about authoritarian regimes <laughs> and terrorism.
1: Um, and this segues very beautifully into the next segment because it is, we have this in two parts, basically. The first one entitled The Revolution Will Not Be Gendered, where we talk about the, the <laughs> queering of fascism and revolution in the comic, and the straightness of the movie. We'll be coming back to Edmund yeah. Dantes and V and also Gordon Dietrich in a little bit. But first, we wanted to talk about the gender politics of fascism. Charles, would you like to take this away?
0: Yeah. Yeah, gosh, obviously this is something I think about extensively every day. (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, I was just struck reading the comic for the first time. Just how many matriarchal figures there are in the comic. So every high-ranking party member V assassinates, and even some of those he doesn't in the end, is in thrall to some feminine symbol. Whether it be the dolls, the statue of justice above the Old Bailey. In Susan's case, a feminized computer. (laughs) Which he seems to think that makes him above everybody else because it's not really a kind of warm sexuality. It's completely cold and mechanical. Yeah, it's kind of odd. Kim, you alluded to Alan Moore's obsession with sex and kind of the portrayal of rape in his comics. That's a Different matter entirely. Mm. But when it comes to sex and politics, for me, it kind of simplifies like the motivations of the fascists somewhat into that trite, like the weaknesses of Mm. the fascists are women. Right, right. Because of course they are. Like behind every great man, there has to be a great woman and and relies on this idea that sexual relationships are a primal necessity. And of course, it's all tying into this macho fascist masculinity that to be successful you need to perform to the party and everyone around you it, it just feels a bit neat and simple to me
1: oh that's interesting
0: don't don't you think that as well like sleaze does exist in yeah. real world politics yeah, I mean, yeah just look at our current prime minister
1: no i fully agree with you on that and,
0: <laughs> yeah yeah and it makes sense in a regime where the men like where uh queer people have been completely excised from society and are oppressed and all of the leading figures are men.
1: Yeah, no, I can... Yeah. It just
0: feels a bit simple. I can see
1: that. But I find that really interesting because I kind of have pretty much the opposite take.
0: <laughs> really? Yeah, no. Ah. No,
1: I agree that there's a lot of sex in this. And I think that your way of reading it is definitely a valid reading of what Alan Moore's doing with all the sex stuff. But I think that, yeah. in my opinion, the sex stuff is sort of clumsily and maybe a bit problematically, but still, like attempting to sort of queer the gender dynamics of fascism as we'd expect them to be. I mean, I think we all agree that fascism and patriarchy are in a very material way intertwined with each other. And yeah. for that reason, fascism is often painted as extremely male. Yes, But I think Patria. that what more, and I guess Lloyd as well, are attempting to do with this... Is to sort of unmale fascism to an extent. So you have you have two things, right? You've got the intimate partner violence as a metaphor for fascism within the party ranks. So you've got Derek and Rosemary Armand, and mm. Helen and Conrad Heyer, both of whom are pairs in which you get domestic violence, which in this case I think sort of kind of clunkily but effectively shows that the violent impulses and the the cruelty and the petty the petty malice that goes into fascism. Can come from both men and women because in yes. the Almond relationship, Derek is, you know, explicitly a very abusive husband to Rosemary. In the relationship between Helen and Conrad, Helen's abuse of Conrad is more emotional, but it's definitely abusive. Yeah. She treats him like dirt. Yes. And at the end of the book, when um Conrad is mortally wounded after killing Helen's boyfriend that she's been having an affair with, Helen not only leaves him to die, but like specifically rigs up a camera so he can watch himself dying, which is, you know, wow.
0: That's pretty messed up. It is. Okay, yeah, that's pretty twisted. And I actually forgot about Helen and Conrad Hire yeah. because... I don't know why, because it's incredibly memorable, now I, now you've reminded me yeah. of it. But it's also not present in the it's film not, at all, is it? It's not, they're both cut, yeah. No.
1: Yeah, so... Great. But I think the other thing, which is slightly more interesting, if a little bit more problematic, that is happening mm. with the sex stuff, is basically, and I'm using air quotes for this, portraying so-called macho-fascists as <laughs> effeminate deviants. Right. Yeah. Because, like you say...
0: So... Oh no no go on, go you know, on like go
1: you on. say you know all the party members are associated with some kind of female influence but aside from yeah. um, the hairs and the almonds none of these female influences are actually women like actual yeah. human women
0: yeah yeah yeah, yeah which
1: yeah. kind of creates this sense of deviant sexuality for the men who are Prothero's obsessed with his dolls in a sort of weird psychosexual way. And he's even specifically defensive about the possibility of the dolls indicating that he's queer. Like, he addresses this in the text because he's so defensive and uncomfortable about it. Um, And then, of course, Susan, who's in love with his computer, which is like... That's not straight, Adam. (laughs) That really (laughs) isn't. So you get a lot of uncomfortable, you know, implications that they are sexually impotent and or deviant, and that means that they're not real men, which is like... "Mm, uh.
0: Yeah. But I guess yeah. they're never really punished by the state for that. Yeah. It's something that they do have to keep private, which kind of adds yeah, yeah. to the idea of being deviant. And
1: I think based on that, what they're really... I think what the comic is going for, and I think it succeeds quite a lot, thankfully, in this respect, is not so much creating a sense of queerphobia where like, non-heterosexual relationships are stigmatised, but you know yeah. the idea that this sort of sexuality... Is perversion precisely because it's an expression of repressed queer urges, and not like yes actual like not that queerness itself is bad and fascist, but that the fascists have so far re- repressed everything that is not straight masculine ideal that their non straight manness exhibits itself in deviant ways that are weird rather than joyful. Right.
0: Yeah. Which is kind of absent from the film. Absolutely. Because, yeah, because Dietrich is overtly gay, but uh, to the party members, he says he's forced to order women to come back home with him. Yeah. Just to give off the veneer of masculinity and heterosexuality. I think
1: that is one of the ways in which the film picks up on this, but it's not really explored to the same extent. And I think the other thing that the film really does is straighten V a lot, which... You know, mm. I mean, V in the book is extremely queer-coded. He never expresses any interest in romantic relations with anybody, especially not with Lady
0: Justice doesn't count. <laughs> Lady
1: Justice does not count, no. no.
0: <laughs> especially because the... Sp- wow, that brings a whole new thing to <laughs> killing your darlings. <laughs> oh, no.
1: um, especially because the speech that he makes about Lady Justice and later anarchy and fate uh, you know, it's very courtly lover-y. Like, you and I both know the sort of trope of the courtly lover. And how it's yeah, not yeah, actually yeah. a romantic or sexual thing. It's, it's a poetic thing. Which is, yeah. you know,
0: rhetorical. that's yeah. very gay. <laughs> Arguing with your loved one in a poetic is manner. is gay. That's kind of gay, though. A little bit.
1: V is very cultured. <laughs> he's very theatrical. And that, combined with his lack of sexual interest in Evie specifically, and in women and people more generally, sort of queer codes him in a non-specific way. And the fact that he was at Lark Hill, You know, he was at Lark Hill, and at Lark Hill they kept the black people, and the gay people, and the political activists. And it's possible that V was originally a political activist, but like, considering he had his political awakening in Lark Hill, that's probably not it. So like, you know, it's highly likely that he was queer and was concentrated in a concentration camp for that reason. And I like that. And of course not to mention the fact that the character of V ends the book by being, what, basically a non-binary figure, because V originally yeah. starts out as a man, and then becomes a woman when Evie takes over the mantle, with no discernible difference
0: yeah. between them. Yeah. yeah.
1: Which I think is great. No, Whereas it is V in straight. the film is straight.
0: <laughs> v in the film is very straight. Uh, yeah. Almost like the chivalric hero of uh, romance. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> of a, uh, The Count of Monte Cristo. <laughs> exactly. Even.
1: And, you know, I think it's telling that they compare mm. him to Edmund Dante's because, I mean, we've sung the praises earlier on of the film for keeping V's campness in. And V is a very camp straight guy in the film, but <laughs> but so is The Count of Monte Cristo, and The Count of Monte Cristo is, yeah. you know, a straight guy archetype. I mean, we can talk about queer readings of that when I've read the book, but...
0: yeah. Don't come at us, yet, yeah, please. Yeah.
1: But that's you know, that's not how he is supposed to be read by according to much of mainstream culture. And I think what yeah. those comparisons and the relationship between V and Evie do together is like sublimate all of V's campness into a sort of Toryish straight dandyism.
0: <laughs> mm. Gosh. Yeah. V the public school boy. <laughs> right.
1: You know, <laughs> You know, plus that, plus the loss of Helen and Rosemary, and the fact that Evie's role in the revolution is a lot more passive, and the erasure of Susan and Prothero's weird stuff, and the fact that, like, they even go to the lengths of renaming the leader, and he's now Adam Sutler, because apparently Susan sounds too effeminate for them. (laughs) Also, you know, Hitler.
0: Sutler, Hitler. Yeah. I bet the crew was cracking open a bottle of champagne when they came up with that one,
1: Ooh, eh? we're so smart. (laughs)
0: was so funny
1: and you know the film is not fascist I'm just gonna put that out there first but I have to say that because (laughs) what I was you know what I'm going to say is basically that I think that by purging the text of a lot of its queerness or at least if not all of it then at least a large amount of it or a large amount of its overtness it kind of Mm. leaves us with a world where the fascists have won to the extent that everyone in it is a straight person and more specifically, a straight man. Yeah. Which is kind of uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, that that's kind of uncomfortable. And I think you're absolutely fair to say that. Yeah. It's also just kind of a really generic ending, yeah. just in its genre. So it kind of loses an element of diversity and originality in that sense as well. It's true.
1: But before we move on, I think we have to talk about very briefly one exception to this, which, you know, Gordon Dietrich. Hello.
0: Gordon Dietrich. Portrayed by Stephen Fry.
1: Playing himself.
0: (laughs) Playing himself? (laughs) Stephen
1: Fry, yeah, Stephen Fry.
0: He does it so well, though. He is very good at it. Stephen Fry does Stephen Fry so well.
1: He's genuinely very charming.
0: The one trace of where V's queer coding is kept in the film is through parallels to Gordon Dietrich, who is paralleled pretty hard with V, Mm. but then also is Evie's mother, because yeah. Dietrich takes Evie in, and when he's eventually arrested because of the comedy skit he makes about Sutler, the police strike Gordon down in basically shot for shot the same way that the police shot Evie's mother while she was yeah. hiding under the bed. Which is, a uh, yeah, pretty traumatic Yeah, when all of your family figures have been often in exactly the same way over and over again what this does for Evie's relationship with V.
1: Yeah, I find this really interesting because obviously Dietrich is presumably straight in the book. I mean, he, he may be bi, uh, but we have no indications of that. And he and Evie have a romantic and sexual relationship. And he, you know, they make him a gay man in this, which I think is quite an interesting choice, especially in light of what we were saying earlier about them straightening out basically everybody else. Hmm. What fascinates me, as you say, he's paralleled really closely with V. In fact, there's a whole sequence in which he cooks Evie the same breakfast that V cooks her after. Yeah, the same fried eggs. in a basket. And <laughs> when Evie points this <laughs> out, Dietrich says, there's a simple there's a simple explanation to this Evie. Explanation. I am V. <laughs> Beneath this wrinkled well-fed exterior there lies a dangerous killing machine with a fetish for foxian
0: masks. Which is a very and V thing even... to say.
1: It is. And he even <laughs> he even does the alliteration with a fetish for foxian masks which mm. I'm really There's also a wrinkled well-fed exterior. This script is brilliant. I'm just, you know, wordplay
0: wise. The consonant sound of V is very close to F
1: and W.
0: And Double K. Mm.
1: Yeah, he's not just parallel. You know, like, this parallel between Dietrich and V doesn't really go anywhere, so I can only assume it's thematic. Mm. And at the same time, his paralleling with V's family, especially her, specifically her parents, very much parallels Evie's relationship with V in the comic, where she does proposition him, but, like, primarily sees him as a paternal figure. Mm. And he even has to, like, disabuse her of the notion that he's her father quite violently and you know the way that i read this after thinking about gender and sexuality in the film versus the book is basically that dietrich is is v he is v as we know him from the book he is the queer man who has a parental relationship with evie and they just get rid of him he's killed by the fascist state he's taken away and we're left with edmund dantes
0: straight boy v yeah
1: yeah um, and I think this does indicate a certain amount of self-awareness I'm not sure if this is even intentional but it does feel like the film is pointing out that they are aware of what they have done and it's a conscious decision to basically mm. turn their version of V into the straight cousin of his own self mm. which is a little unfortunate but you know
0: I guess you yeah. could argue that it's kind of vindicated at a really nice shot at the end of the film yeah. but we're going to talk about that one later later Yes,
1: I think that all of the straightening of fascism and the sort of making fascism more male and more straightforwardly male is part of what the film does in terms of approaching the politics of the book, which is namely boiling it down to its essentials and simplifying <laughs> and unfortunately unnuancing basically everything.
0: Fascism, bad. Fascism, terrible. Fascism, pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whereas the book is more overtly pro-anarchist and... Yeah. More is pushing an agenda pretty hard. Mm. The film is more generally anti-fascist. Fascism is bad.
1: I mean, the book obviously is also anti-fascist, but its main job is to try and propose a solution. And mm. it picks anarchy as a political ideology and just runs with it and like explores what it does and what it's for and its good points and its bad points. The film is more really against a bad thing than it is for any sort of good thing. Which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it is definitely a change I was also really interested in how they treat fascism in both the book and film. Mm. I think in the film, it comes across a lot less as lived experience and a lot more as cartoonish villainy. You know, the the book shows fascism as an imperfect system of control. You've got a thriving underworld. You've got sex, drugs, rock and roll.
0: Yeah. Uh, (laughs) You know. It gets kind of messy, yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it does, it does. I mean, like, fascism is defined in the book by violence and oppression, but in a way that feels messy lived in... Imperfect, and I think in a way that is a lot truer to real life. Not truer to real life. There's no way of exerting total control over everybody. I mean, you, you exert a lot of control over a lot of people, which is why authoritarianism is authoritarianism. Yeah. But you, you know, there there are gaps, and I think the main, the you know, the main horror of fascism in the book is not so much the control as the way that like it warps everybody into the ugliest version of themselves and creates a society that is just hostile. In every respect, even the free parts. Yes. Yeah.
0: And everyone is forced to go along with mm-hmm. it. That was one of the things that Moore stated quite a lot in interviews, oh, yeah. also in the early 2000s. Uh, it's funny that you basically repeated Alan Moore's own point <laughs> to him, that he wanted the fascists to be believable. He said, they're not monsters. Mm-hmm. They're human beings who have like chosen to be complicit with the order of the day. And the order of the day is fascism and they could use that to gain power and get ahead. Yeah. So they did. <laughs> At the expense of yeah, a lot a lot of people. Yeah.
1: I mean, I the book is all about the banality of evil and the evil of banality. It's about everyday misery and the way that yeah. fascism isn't 1984, it's just everything sucks all the time. Yeah. In the film fascism is a dystopian nightmare straight out of pick. <laughs>
0: 1984 is quite a good comparison yeah. with John Hurt's Sutler on the big TV screen, yeah, yeah. big brother styling. Mm, yeah. It's an obvious comparison. Exactly. Aesthetically. Yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> it's, it's efficient. It's put together. It seems to work like clockwork. There's, it's, it's fascism yeah. as fascism would like to be seen. It is the perfect idea of a Nazi regime, you know? Mm. There's also extra focus on the secret police aspects. I mean, obviously the book is very invested in them as well, but here it's a a whole thing. I mean, Creedy doesn't even appear until midway through Viva Vendetta and he's quite, like, the comic, and he's quite ineffective and is murdered at the end.
0: Yeah, they're just kind of like a bunch of thugs. Like, even the way they're dressed, they're not, like, in uniform as such, as they're just a bunch of dudes who have been given power. Yeah. Yeah. whereas they've got SWAT teams in the film who are all dressed up in military gear. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, you get the state as a faceless bad actor. I mean, and it's funny to say it's faceless because we do see the faces of fascism <laughs> in this film quite clearly. Yeah. But the state itself is like this monolithic. It's it's almost like what fate is meant to be in the comic. It's this it's this all-powerful, all-controlling monolithic machine. Yeah. And I think in a way that is a disservice to the actual realities of fascism, which, as we know from observing fascist regimes past and present, Mm. I mean, yes, they have the concentration camps, and yes, they have police control, and they have the destruction of the free press, and all of those things, and those are the worst excesses of fascism. But fundamentally, people gonna people, and fascism is the worst possible expression of that, rather than everyone suddenly turning into Robocop.
0: (laughs) Yes, oh my god. (laughs) Yeah. And that's where the cartoonishness lies, yeah. It's where it begins
1: also and i think do you want to take this one because i know we both felt this i have yeah. here saint mary's as if fascism itself wasn't bad enough
0: yeah in the film is there a virus in the book it's just or is a regular just the plague Holocaust?
1: everyone's sick because of the nuclear
0: yeah it's just a play okay and one of the one of the cover-ups cover stories for the lark hill concentration camp is that they're testing on humans to provide a cure mm. right but in the film they go the extra mile and insinuate that the state actually created this virus as a bioweapon and then launched it at Ireland. Mm-hmm. Oof. O- <laughs> oof. So that's that's opening a new can of worms. But yeah. I think it's one that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, the Britain Britain that is portrayed in Viva Vendetta is, is English. It's not British, it's it's English. Yeah. It's London. It kind of makes sense, but it kind of belabours the point as well. Is fascism not bad enough? You know, do we also have to go to the lengths of creating a virus just to solidify the fact that England is safe and the rest of the world is falling apart? You know, wasn't the nuclear war in the rest of the world enough?
1: I mean, I don't have an issue with the suggestion that fascist governments come to power by attacking their own citizens or that fears the biggest weapon that they have or any of those things that the storyline brings up, I think my main issue with it is just, it seems both redundant and reductive. It feels like someone said, you know what the worst thing about Hitler is? He burned down the Reichstag and blamed the communists for it.
0: Right! Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Random event at like the beginning of their rise to power instead of the long-term implications of that. How they over culture right? i mean
1: isn't fascism bad enough without having to have them cheat in order to get into power even if you yeah. chose fascism as the best possible option isn't it bad enough to fight for that reason in itself i think
0: no they have to go a bit too far and burn down a nice building yeah everybody goes oh no <laughs> that was a good building uh, i mean I... that took me ages to build i
1: think that's an example of the film going slightly too far in its mission to make every politic in from the book black and white. In this case, it mm. goes from black to blacker, and I don't think it had to be. I think fascism's a pretty credible enemy without having to attribute biological warfare to them as well. Just yeah, saying. I think by contrast, the other thing that they do to increase the contrast between the revolution and the regime is that, you know, the anarchy of the book is dissolved into a just sort of more general, palatable, revolutionary spirit. There's a whole... There's a segment in both the book and film where people go a bit crazy and, like, V deliberately engineers a period where people run around and shoot up bodegas with impunity. But in Yikes. in the book, it's described specifically as... Charles, can you pronounce this word? I I don't... It's German, isn't it?
0: Ah. Die Verführung. Thank you. Confusion. Yes. Yeah, confusion, chaos.
1: And V specifically describes it as chaos and not as anarchy and as, like... A thing in itself that is bad, it's just the growing pains of something better. Whereas, yeah. you know, it's treated in the film as, like, not so much a necessary evil as all parts of the plan to engineer a glorious revolution. And for that reason, like, you know, the book is very ambivalent about the value of anarchy. It ultimately comes down on the side of anarchy, but does acknowledge that it involves a lot of violence and chaos and looting and thuggishness that is not positive, it's just worth it. Whereas the film's very much like, Revolution's great, and it's pretty, and we play nice music, and there are fireworks. You know.
0: (laughs) It's like fireworks night, guys. You remember the fireworks Except with
1: regime change.
0: (laughs) Regime change. Uh, Yeah, and... I mean, that's better than what this year's Guy Fawkes Night's going to be like, I suppose. Uh... With just (laughs) our household.
1: Uh Yeah, also, you know, the book, the book also leaves very open Uh, the very real threat that V's anarchy might cause England to consume itself. In fact, hmm. they he even says when he's dying, they must decide what they'll do. Will they create a utopia of their own, or will they descend into total violence and kill each other? I mean, that's definitely
0: possible. Will they? Won't yeah. they? It's up to you, reader. But, you know, you at do? the same
1: time, it asserts that even if everybody just destroy society is totally worth it because society as it is is not worth having, which I think is very powerful as an anti-fascist statement. The film has neither of those messages. The film doesn't go, fascism is so bad that even if we descended into total chaos and destroyed society and ate ourselves, it would be better than this. They were just like, (laughs) fascism's bad and good news, everybody. We have solved the problem.
0: (laughs) I have brought the fireworks (gasps) and I'm putting on a show.
1: It's significantly more optimistic about the probability of successful revolution, uh, which I find comforting, but also less complex. Mm.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think the prime example of this optimism comes with how uh, the Wachowski sisters write Finch as a resoundingly heroic Mm. character, who is completely converted by V's cause, and even pops up at the train tunnel at the end, just to challenge Evie to reassert her lack of fear of death and whatever, which was pretty well established when she was tortured for weeks yes. on end. It's kind of lame. They even go up and stand on the roof together to watch the fireworks as if they're like the Adam and Eve of the new World Order. <laughs> it's it's pretty lame. Yeah.
1: I mean, they there's a flash forward, it's it's a blink and you'll miss it scene but there's a brief moment in when Finch is having a sort of trippy vision where he sees himself and Evie living together and she brings him a bouquet of roses.
0: Uh... Which is... Mm-hmm. Did I miss that? No,
1: yeah, it's in the bit where he's talking to Dominic and he says, I could see everything, the past, the future. And there's like just a second where you see Evie with her curls holding a big flower box of roses and she walks away from the mantelpiece with a mirror on top of it and in the mirror is Finch. He's like
0: sitting on the That's sofa. That's gross!
1: I, I hate that. I know, thanks, I hate it.
0: Oh, um, get those roses out of my house. <laughs> there will be no roses, not for anybody. Not for anybody.
1: Yeah, I agree that Finch is a perfect example of this. I mean, I'd say that Finch is, you know, represents the ambiguity of the ending of the book. He has Mm. a whole conversion experience that is, like, the most literal possible description of converting to a religion. (laughs) Or, like, at (laughs) least in the Christian rhetoric, you know, he, like, strips naked sprints out of a concentration camp or having an LSD bender and stands in the sun <laughs> stands in the center of Stonehenge with his dick out and his arms raised in a fantastic V motion <laughs> while the sun rises at his back and he's like yes! And then he immediately Is this a serious comic book? He immediately goes to kill V and he's really happy about this. <laughs> and at the end of the book he just like the very very last panel of the whole book is not V is not Evie it's Eric Finch walking down the highway out of London, into the unknown, yep. as the whole country walks for into an unknown future with him. And he, I think, represents, you know, how a person can fall in love with a revolution, but also not be sold out to it, and how people can both accept and reject revolution at the same time and be left with an uncertain future. And the fact that they make Finch convert to V's side unambiguously in the film, and have V killed by Creedy in a sort of Reichenbach fall kind of moment. Kills his ambiguity dead. Which, you know what, if they were going to do that in the rest of the movie, they may as well have done it here too. I like a bit of consistency, I'm not going to complain about it. (laughs) But, you know, it is what it is.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so at the moment, they're free for free on character assassinations. Oh no. Oh,
1: Oh, Eric.
0: When will it end?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the final character that they assassinate is Parliament House, so Congratulations. (laughs) Uh uh I mean on a slightly less, you know, gloomy note about the politics. I will say that like while cynically speaking they replace a gorgeously nuanced take on anarchist politics in the comic with shit blowing up and stirring music. <laughs> it it looks fantastic and it makes my heart do a thing. It, you know, it makes me feel a feeling to watch them blow up a symbol of power while the 1812 Overture plays, and people, you know, and, like, (laughs) a giant swarm of people in masks and cloaks storm Westminster as men with guns stand down and are just covered by a sea of people, and it's it's great. And the end where, like, the fireworks are going off and everyone takes off their masks and, like, stares in wonder at the sky is great. And when we see the faces of the dead and we feel them resurrected in the revolution, that's also great. Yes. I mean, you know, great.
0: Oh yeah, that that's good stuff. Yeah. It kind of cements that they've become ideas yeah. like V and that their deaths don't make them any less instrumental to the revolution. It's, it's cute. It is.
1: And, you know, I I mourn the loss of nuance, but I gotta say that... <laughs> While we I think have the right to castigate it for not being as interesting as the book, there is something mm. to be said for a movie that is not just straight- up anti-fascist but also joyously revolutionary and that portrays revolution in the face of dehumanizing regimes as an unambiguous good and gives us a moment of triumph and joy at the end. I mean, it's good stuff, you know
0: yeah. I know what I want to feel when I walk out of the cinema. Yeah. Trauma, a bombastic roller coaster ride.
1: Is how you want to feel concerned about the state of England and unsure about its future.
0: Yeah, how I feel when I wake up every morning anyway. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, film. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> I paid for this. <laughs> I paid 18 quid for this ticket? What?
1: I, you know, <laughs> I mean, my thoughts on the film are as ambivalent as the f- comics' thoughts on Revolution. But they can be summed up basically in this one quote that I really love from quite early on in the movie where V says, people shouldn't be afraid of the government, governments should be afraid of their people, which is like a hideously (laughs) simplistic thing to say, but is also unambiguously true. And yeah. if I were Alan Moore and I heard that coming out of his mouth, I would throw the script out the window and scream. As I think he did,
0: actually. <laughs> but He did distance himself from this one as well. He
1: did. He <laughs> demanded his name get take off taken off the movie. So, you know, there we go. Oh
0: Alan.
1: But as a fifteen year old child, just coming into politics, mostly from Tumblr and like debate <laughs> in school, I ate that. Up. I was like, heck yes, you're right V, people shouldn't be afraid of the governments, governments should be afraid of their people mm. and I mean like <laughs> what are movies for if not to radicalise 15 year old children against fascism?
0: Yep. Is it not enough to see V large? <laughs> <laughs> he was very large, he was an entire crowd of people <laughs> a whole nation
1: Isn't it enough to see Hugo weaving not at all <laughs>
0: <laughs> Except when he's dressed <laughs> as um, Rockwood. Oh, that's right. He's very obviously Hugo Weaving. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Oops. Anyway. <laughs>
1: On to our final segment.
0: Maybe it's because I'm a Londoner <laughs> that I really enjoy the location specificity in the both the comic and the film, and how the film takes some of the historical elements from its own time and updates V for Vendetta to more accurately represent the fascist politics that may be. <laughs> playing in the 21st century and even some elements of post-truth debate getting in there. Uh... But, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, I think what we want to say in this section is that the... What? Oh, crud. I just said it. I just said it. (laughs) two times played. maybe it's
1: because you're a londoner
0: maybe it's because i'm a londoner that i've completely lost my train of thought this hit too close to home oh no can we talk about how this comic was written in the first term of facturism and the legacy of those politics is still in play today what the actual frack Mm. why Mm. so much of viva vendetta is resident in british society today yeah and what i think is even more impressive is that the film actively alters elements of the comic story to bring them closer in line with how fascism has manifested itself in the 21st century
1: yeah and it did remarkably well as well
0: and so has this quote from alan moore that i'm going to use to illustrate my point please do so he also says this around the release of the film it seemed to me that with the kind of reagan thatcher axis that existed across the atlantic it looked like Western society was taking somewhat a turn for the worse. There were, <laughs> to put it lightly, there were ugly fascist stains starting to reassert themselves that we might have thought had been eradicated back in the 30s, but they were reasserting themselves with a different spin. They were talking less about annihilating whichever minority they happened to find disfavour with, and talking more about free market forces and market choice and all these other kind of glib terms which tended to have the same results as an awful lot of the kind of fascist causes back in the 1930s, but with a bit more spin put upon them. The friendly face of fascism. Hmm.
1: Fair enough.
0: If that's not canned fake news, then I I don't know what is. (laughs) (laughs) Fascism with a human face. The face of Guy Fawkes, in fact. (laughs) Tell me what. No. That's how it's been uh, co-opted. No. Yeah, so to give some more context... The comic Viva Vendetta was based on Moore's belief that Margaret Thatcher would lose the 1983 election to Michael Foote, who may have been a point of comparison by the tabloids for Jeremy Corbyn, but we're going to sweep that under the rug. (laughs) So Moore expected Michael Foote's Labour government to completely trounce Margaret Thatcher's to come in and disarm the UK's nuclear weapons and thus leave the UK untouched by the nuclear war that besets the world in Viva Vendetta. Mm. Uh, He did admit later that this was quite a naive view. (laughs) I'm not sure he could see the Falklands War coming, to be honest. Mm. I'm not sure anyone could. But it's still quite resonant today, I'd say. I mean, those politics have defined Toryism, conservatism, and even Labour was forced to move towards... The right. Margaret Thatcher's legacy. We've basically had a Thatcherite government for the last years.
1: And <laughs> it UK. shows.
0: It, and it shows. <laughs> you guys haven't had a socialist government in 40 years, and it shows.
1: I mean, we haven't had a socialist government in more than 40 years, and that shows as well. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I must say that I am remarkably impressed by how well the film carries this context into a more modern period and like I mean while we talk about the film being a lot less specific in terms of political theory I think it keeps a lot of the specificity in terms of the granular detail of the times and the culture and like the ways in which fascism comes about in the period that it's depicting. Yes. I mean Sutler was a Tory they actually say that which I'm really into
0: They did eat uh, that. <laughs> He was yeah. a Tory who was discontent with how liberal things were getting
1: he was a Tory, like? she was a country. <laughs> 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 Can I make it any more obvious?
0: He was a Tory that didn't like Europe. <laughs> he was a backbencher.
1: Uh, oh lord. Yeah. yeah, I also think that some of the changes really bring the context of the film to the 21st century in the way that the de- the same details in the comic bring it into in line with 1980 politics. Yes. I'm thinking especially of how the fascist state in the film is Islamophobic as well as racist. And, I, you know, Islamophobia doesn't really show up much in the comic. I mean, I'm not going to say that Islamophobia didn't exist before 9-11, but it definitely became a lot more of a thing post-9-11. Yes. Yeah.
0: And its influence was very marked on all Hollywood films coming out around that time as well.
1: Yeah, and like the fact that, you know... Muslims specifically are on the fascist government's hit list alongside people of colour and gay people, really situates the world of Youth of in the film in a post-9-11 world, which, yeah. you know, I think is great. I which think is it's still great.
0: realistic. It still yeah, could happen. Yeah. yeah.
1: It's as much a landscape of the time and today as uh... the anti-Windrush stuff was of the 1980s. And today.
0: And today. Yeah, yeah. the UK's kind of just been stuck in the 80s for the last half a century, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, unfortunately your comics have marched on. <laughs>
0: oh, Alan Moore, come back.
1: <laughs>
0: come back to us. We need you.
1: <laughs> also, I'm not really... I think you're probably in a better place to comment on this, um, and it's mm. just a throwaway line, but there's a bit where Finch, Finch's loyalty is questioned in the film by someone saying, you're Irish. Your mother was Irish, wasn't she? Oh, gosh. Terrible what St. Mary's did to Ireland. And I was like, oh... <laughs>
0: Yeah, we is bio,
1: that supposed to be Ireland?
0: Is that supposed to be a challenge to him, like to reassert his <laughs> allegiance to the party?
1: I mean, I think it was.
0: What am I supposed to say to that dude? Yeah, they killed my family. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, yes, it was bad. Viruses and bioweapons are inherently bad.
1: Yeah. But I but now you, you know you're
0: bring up my Irishness as well.
1: I was especially just the fact that they, American filmmakers, picked up on the way the English have treated Ireland over the years is endlessly delightful to me, but in the grimmest of possible ways.
0: Is it that obvious?
1: Yes. Terrible what <laughs> the did to, you know. Uh,
0: the whole world.
1: Yeah. Also, the thing that I am really impressed by, I think most of all, is how the shift of I say Prothero specifically, but just like the the whole aesthetic of fascism in the film, and specifically yeah. Prothero's body TV politic. show, yeah. <laughs> the um, finger at the head goes from a the yeah mouth. from a behind the scenes hidden voice that nobody knows the name of, and like mm. who has to constantly remain hidden and unidentified, into basically Alex Jones, and this is yeah. you know years before Infowars and all of that became like a huge deal. Yeah.
0: Conspiracy and... theories were barely yeah. sprouting on the internet. Yeah, yeah.
1: And good job for prefiguring Alex Jones, guys. Well done.
0: Good job. I wish we could have all seen it coming. <laughs> yeah, I do kind of miss the artificiality of the comic, Profaro. Yeah. Who is the godlike voice and people are glued to him. But also seeing him as the guy behind all the smoke and mirrors is a kind of wizard. <laughs> wizard of Oz character. Yeah, but I agree that that portrayal is a bit twentieth century, yeah. and I really like what they've done with him. Yeah, yeah, to bring him to the twenty first century.
1: Yeah, and I think you know I think the Wachowskis and their team, you know, they really grasp the shift in fascism from the twentieth to twenty first century. I don't think fundamentally the ideology has changed, or you know, the obsessions with like racial purity and economic might have changed
0: at all. But,
1: but like, aesthetically, more
0: populist and yeah, exactly. sophisticated.
1: Yeah, I mean, wow. the idea, you know, 20th century fascist aesthetics are very clean and neat and yeah. vaguely elite, even though they decry the elites. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah, it's funny how that happened.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, it's it's organized around sort of a stiff upper lip macho, like, quiet strength kind of thing, despite yeah. all the shouting and the stomping. Uh, 21st yeah. century fascism is very infowarzy and it is based on, I think, celebrity culture and histrionic expressions of of emotion that 20th century fascists would probably want to keep behind closed doors. Mm. And yeah, and the film nails that in a way that the book doesn't, I think. And the book shouldn't because it was set in the 80s, or written in the 80s, but, you know, there we go.
0: Mm. (laughs) It's also kind of impressive how the film uses the aesthetics of the 80s, early 90s, Thatcherite era. Oh yeah? uh, Through... Yeah, through those grainy news broadcasts that mm. anybody who has seen uh this is a bit later than when Moore was writing, but Yeah. The miners strike, or like the poll tax strikes, or basically any of the discontent during the Fat period, you'll instantly draw those parallels between those newsreels and what is happening in FIFA Vendetta. It's a very <laughs> quintessentially English riot. <laughs> and yeah, to see American movie pick up on that is yeah. really quite special.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the film does a remarkably good job of being British-ish. Despite the fact that it was made primarily by Americans, (laughs) I was really interested to see how I felt about the Britishness of the film. I first saw this film years and years before I even decided to move to England, and like I was, (laughs) I'd been an Anglophile pretty much since I watched FIFA Vendetta, mostly because of Doctor Who and Sherlock. (laughs) But I, you know, knew very little about British culture aside from what you get from books and television. And now I am a person who has lived in England on and off for four years and I know a lot more about it. So like watching it again now, it's interesting to think about basically non British people who are outsiders to the culture but are nonetheless enthusiastic about it, which is exactly what I was like before I (laughs) you know, when I
0: first saw this movie. (laughs) Before you came here and realized how good it was. Um
1: I absolutely recognize the same ticks that I would have made if I made this film, although I think they do a lot better edit than i would have done especially at the age of 15 yeah
0: <laughs> they were also a whole team
1: yeah that's and true. could have had
0: any number of consultants who were british but
1: it's definitely possible yeah this
0: is not what 15 year old kim had access to
1: no no not at all
0: i mean as somebody who has lived in england for most of my life i can confirm mm-hmm. that the film does capture urban london mannerisms and dialects pretty well without <laughs> making everyone hilariously cockney for no reason yeah <laughs> Which Hollywood is wont to do. <laughs> it's not like Crazy Rich Asians level of gratuitous regards to location shots either. Right, You know, right. people in real life protest outside Westminster every day. Yeah. They <laughs> protest in Trafalgar Square. You know, this is normal. Because those mm. icons are shoved down our throats all the time as being seats of power and imperialism and symbolic and blah. Right, right. The old Bailey appears once when it's blown to, promptly blown us smithereens there was like one shot of the bt tower as the broadcasting studio where evie works but that makes sense if you're going to pick a seat for your national broadcasting studio you know it's another national symbol yeah but nothing about this film really shoves i heart london t-shirts down my throat (laughs) or says let's have a cup of tea one sugar (laughs) tally-ho Raise your pinky up.
1: Charles swiveled slightly in his chair as he said Tally ho, and I just like had this image of him riding away on a horse. <laughs> Tallyho!
0: Oh, oh, I can't <laughs> spin all the way around because my I'm using a headphone jack and a wire. hi silver away.
1: Yeah, no, I I didn't feel like I was living in a theme park version of London, which is what happens <gasps> a lot when American movies set things in London. I it's think set things that anywhere. I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but especially England for some reason, it's like Herods. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> They just set the whole movie in (laughs) Harrods. They don't even get as far as Leicester Square. Um, But I think, you know, if the only things I point out that sort of indicate that it's not as British as the book that was made by actual British people, they lose out on specific granular detail, especially sort of geographical stuff. I love these dying words where he says to Evie, the Victoria line is blocked twixt Whitehall and St. James, which is directly under Downing Street. Uh, yes. apparently. Uh, which is not something I knew, because I have no idea where Whitehall and St James are, at least I did not when I first read the book.
0: <laughs> You've been to the park, um, I, I mean, I know
1: where they the are park. now, but I'm still not London enough to make the connection automatically. And I mean, for, <laughs> for various reasons, they cut that for the film. I have no problem with that, but that's just an example. You know, the Victoria Line, just the whole Victoria Line situation.
0: The whole Victoria Line.
1: But also because they hyper fixate on some things about British culture in the manner of a person who is way more excited about cultural features than like mm. an actual jaded native would be.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, we see Guy Fawkes all the time. On the yeah, <laughs>
1: And by, <laughs> by some things and certain cultural features, I yeah, I just mean Guy Fawkes. Like they love Guy who? Fawkes.
0: Who?
1: <laughs> Guy Fawkes was a hero.
0: Who?
1: It's a hero of our times. But what of the men?
0: I think the last time I heard anybody mention Guy Fawkes was in primary school. Oh, wait, seriously? Yeah, when we would get to November and children would ask, why the hell do we have fireworks on the 5th of November? And then they would explain it to us and you would literally never hear of Guy Fawkes ever again. Mm. In fact, in popular parlance, most people just refer to Guy Fawkes Night as fireworks night now. Oh, really? It's quite odd to refer to it as Guy Fawkes Night. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: I think the appeal, actually, that David Lloyd and Alan Moore felt in making V a Guy Fox person is that they were sort of building up a folk history of England based on a sort of rubbish hero that, like, yeah. everybody knew about enough and cared about enough to identify and identify with, but, like, you know, he's not, like, a cultural icon, which is why they could do this. You, yeah, you couldn't do the American equivalent by like having the Statue of
0: Liberty running around, like <laughs> Uncle Sam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, there's an interview where Alan Moore talks about the first time David Lloyd presented to him the drawing of V, and he said, "This is f***ing ridiculous. I love it."
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I believe the exact quote was, sense. "Um, I have this essay actually. I should try to find it."
0: Kim's got the book out.
1: I've got the book out. Uh, let me see. It's... Beware. Uh, ah, yes. Read the script. While I was writing this, I had this idea about the hero, which is a bit redundant now we've got. Can't read the next bit. But nonetheless, I was thinking, mm-hmm. why don't we portray him as a resurrected Guy Fawkes complete with one of those papier-mâché masks in a cape and conical <laughs> hat? He'd look really bizarre, and it would give Guy Fawkes the image he's deserved all these years. We shouldn't burn the chap every November 5th, but celebrate his attempt to blow up Parliament. <laughs> That's David <laughs> Lloyd, by the way. The I love guards. him. He's so cool. David <laughs> And I think that indicates, you know, that the fact that Guy Fox is celebrated by the comic in large part because he's a bit rubbish and everybody hates him. And they like to set him on fire and they thought it would be fun to turn him into a folk <laughs> hero. And it might just be because the culture context has changed somewhat because V for Vendetta was so popular, but I just find it really amusing that the, Wachowski- that the Wachowskis at all were like, we love Guy Fox, and so does everybody in England. If they only remember their history, they yeah. remember how much they love Guy Fox too. I'm like, okay, yeah, Sure. <laughs> I love that. That's really funny.
0: It's very cute.
1: You know, as a coda, I was frankly shocked. I mean, I loved Guy Fox, at least the Viva Veneta version, when I went to England, because you know, love this book and also this movie. And when I was there, I was like, <laughs> y'all celebrate Guy Fox Night, right? And they were like, yeah. Who? We watched. Yeah, London begrudgingly. <laughs>
0: yeah it's kind of cold outside.
1: Yeah.
0: do we have to uh, i
1: was I was <laughs> disappointed. You guys have forgotten a very great citizen and you've no longer commemorate his holiday and frankly, it's time to blow up Parliament house.
0: okay, yeah, I'm all for it. <laughs> the last year's parties have been pretty sh- anyway. make a nice change. Uh, I bet there's lots no. of flammable stuff in there. <laughs> <laughs> oh
1: no, Boris Johnson is full of hot air. The only thing I want to mention under any other business, and this is totally frivolous and I just have to say it because this bugs me in a fun way every single time I watch the movie. (laughs) Finch's bug disrupting device, where he like very ceremoniously takes out this device and lays it on his table and it unfolds itself in a cool high-tech way and disrupts the bugs in his office, is literally Mm. just a folding book light with a white bulb, like they swapped out the white bulb for a red one. And it's a cheap-ass <laughs> folding book light made of plastic. And I know I, I recognised it on site because I had one of those
0: as a child. Are you sure you weren't just being watched? <laughs> you weren't bugged.
1: Ha ha. Anyway, I had one. And like, I, you know, a lot of people make a big thing out of how, especially in sci-fi films and TV shows, people make props out of everyday objects and how there's like a there's like a communicator in Star Trek that's just a book light folded in half and painted gold or something. But I was just really amused mm, by this Sonic because they didn't even...
0: will never catch on. <laughs>
1: I mean, they didn't even paint it gold. They didn't even—they do anything to it. It's just a book light.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's a common or garden book light. They had the budget to blow up Parliament House.
0: Yeah, they blew all their budget on blowing up Parliament House. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that was my Any it's Other worth. Business, and I couldn't end this episode without mentioning it.
0: <laughs> okay, I'm glad you got that off your chest, Kim. Thank you. So, uh, shall we conclude?
1: Yes, final thoughts. Hmm. Viva for created by Alan Moore and David Lloyd, and published over the entire course of the 1980s, is uh, <laughs> it's probably my favourite comic. It's a gorgeous character study, a compelling portrait of British society, and a powerful and brilliantly nuanced political thesis. It's thrilling, painful, absurd, and, I'm gonna say it, better than Watchmen. <laughs> uh, uh, how could you I mean, you this is totally gratuitous so. comparison, there's no reason to compare them, and, no. you know, don't. But what is an episode of Scribe to Screen without the hot take? And for my money, I'd much rather read Viva Vendetta, although why not both?
0: Why not both? Why not both? Alan Moore made two good comics with his Davids. <laughs> v for Vendetta, directed by Lily and Lana Wachowski and released in 2005, is a great comic book film about <laughs> Batman <laughs> and not about V for Vendetta. Oh gosh, it's such a nice template for what comic book films should be. Yes. Just campy, yeah. And at the same time, serious, fun, and at the same time, pretty psychologically dark. deep, dark, and yeah, political, radicalized.
1: <laughs> yeah, and yeah. it is by far the most left-wing comic book movie I've ever seen.
0: Damn, and you've seen all of this. <laughs> try- t- t- all of the trying to make a joke now, <laughs> Ant Man, which about the worker ants. <laughs> Up for the world. Yeah, that was a terrible joke.
1: <laughs> cut that. You uh, cut That's that one. Absolutely
0: cut. Yeah. Ah, and I understand the film now. <laughs> but okay. yes, you will have Kim's permission to watch the film before the book. But Please you have to that. promise to w- read the book afterwards. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening. describe to the Screen. Next time to celebrate the delay of the latest Bond film. <laughs> We'll be revisiting <laughs> Daniel Craig's 007 debut with Casino Royale, directed by Martin Campbell, and released in 2006. Oh, and apparently it was a book in 1953 by some Ian Fleming guy. Didn't he discover penicillin?
1: <laughs> uh, <coughs> We'd like to thank our patrons, Dr. Faustus, Mimi Byens, Jack Slater, and Claire So.
0: If you want to see more of Kim's work, you can find her on Twitter at at and you can find her music on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com forward slash 2kn.
1: Charles can be found on Twitter at Albertonica, and he writes a blog about game design at www.ludonarrativewrittenance.com. I do!
0: He Give does. us money at patreon.com forward slash scribe to screen. We're also on Twitter at, at scribe underscore two, and on Facebook at, at scribe to screen pod. Thanks. Thanks. Remember, Bye. remember the 5th of November. Evie, I am your father. No! (laughs) (laughs) Don't sound that excited. We're going to bring down Parliament. (laughs) There could be fireworks and everything.
1: But we kissed! Wouldn't it be awkward to accidentally kiss a relation of yours?
0: Well, maybe you should have waited until you found out.
1: <laughs> hashtag Star Wars. trying to rush your
0: relationships. Hashtag Star Wars. Hashtag feminism.